You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hi, and welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Ruth Marcus, Deputy Editorial Page Editor and Columnist here at The Post, and I'm sitting in for Jonathan Capehart. I want to start to talk about a very busy August week. They all seem to be busy in August um, with Annie Linsky, national political reporter here at The Post. Welcome back to First Look, Annie. Hi, great to be here. Thanks for coming. Um, We saw a very high profile critic of Donald Trump lose her job this week. Here's how Liz Cheney described that defeat to supporters on Tuesday night. Let's listen. Two years ago, I won this primary with 73% of the vote. I could easily have done the same again. The path was clear, but it would have required that I go along with President Trump's lie about the 2020 election. It would have required that I enable his ongoing efforts to unravel our democratic system and attack the foundations of our republic. That was a path I could not and would not take. Annie, Liz Cheney's loss didn't surprise anyone. Probably didn't even surprise Liz Cheney. Um, But what does it tell us about Donald Trump and his role in the Republican Party? Well, you know, I think um, that clip, Ruth, that you just played of Liz Cheney just shows that she knows exactly what uh, what path she would have had to take to win um, her primary. And um, it shows over and over again in these primaries, we have seen that um, Republicans who stand up to Donald Trump and make that a, a major part of their um, their brand, their campaign, have lost. I mean, we've seen it, you know, of course, it wasn't a surprise um, with Cheney's loss, but you've seen it in South Carolina. I mean, you know, earlier in the primaries, remember um, Tom Rice, who also was one of the um, Republicans who stood up and voted for impeachment. He, he lost on the same day that another um, Democrat um, Representative Mace, who had gotten the ire of Trump, managed to win by sort of supplicating herself to him. So I think the lesson here, which has been kind of told over and over again through this primary season, is if you are going to stand up to Trump, you have to really try to work hard to get back into his graces. And standing up to him and making that part of your message does not work with primary voters who are Republicans. Yeah, and Annie, I think you said um, Democrat, but I'm pretty sure you meant Republican oh, there. Sure. Yes, just just so nobody's <laughs> confused out there. Um, I, I want to get back to the point that you were making, but I don't want to leave Liz Cheney just quite yet, because this might not be the last we've heard of her. She has this open flirtation with a presidential run in 2024. I'm wondering what you think the impact of that would be. And is there a segment of the GOP? What segment of the GOP? would find her message appealing. Yeah, that was one um, interesting piece that came out last, uh, you know, on the primary evening um, that she's, you know, considering this run for um, for the White House. And she clearly would appeal to those Republicans who don't like Trump, find him, you, you know, somebody who they d- dislike, but also aren't quite ready to vote for a Democrat or don't want to re-vote for, you know, um, Biden. You, you saw, you know, when Biden won in 2020, a piece of his coalition really was those disaffected Republicans. And when I go around the country and talk to people who are Republicans and say, you know, they they have 
they they have uh, you know the sort of shine has fallen away from Biden. They no longer think that he is somebody who can bring the country together and um, solve that. And it, it's hard to imagine them voting for him a second time. And I think, you know, she could play a spoiler. You know, that would be, of course, if she ran as an independent. I think as a, um, you know, a, as a Republican in a Republican primary, I think it would be really tough. I mean, that's what these primary have shown across the board in 2022 is that, you know, Donald Trump still has a firm grasp on the party and it would very much be his nomination to lose. But could she play some kind of spoiler role, which she sort of hinted that she would be interested in, in a general, if she were running as an independent? You know, I think that's kind of an interesting question and one we'll just continue to explore. Um, we definitely will. So you mentioned earlier the um, how Trump demands this kind of apology on bended knee, kiss the ring from people who have stood up to him. And if that doesn't happen, he um, crushes them, as, as least as we've seen so far. Is this about his revenge tour or is there something more going on here? And I, I my, that's a leading question to get you to talk about him in 2024. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think it it is a just a reminder of how how much Republicans, Republican voters, um, desperately, you know, have this deep attachment to Trump and all things Trump, and they're willing to forgive somebody who, um, you know, they're willing to forgive a candidate who will kind of step away from him, um, you know, if they are seen as working to get back into his good graces. And to your question about Trump in 2024, I mean, it it, it absolutely does show um, his sort of ironclad, you know, control over this party. But I think part of the vendetta tour um, that is surprising to me is it has meant that Trump has backed candidates who will be very hard to win, who will have a, who, will, who are struggling in, in sort of the general election phase. Um, so you wonder if these very loyal Trump um, candidates lose in the general election, you know, how much of a power base is he really going to have going into 2024? Um, you know, and you, you look, there's places like Georgia where he backed a, a candidate who lost the governor's race there, sort of losing an ally in, in, in that state. Um, and you can kind of see that across the board. Arizona is another place where a similar dynamic could happen. Um, Nevada is another. And these are places where, you know, Donald Trump would like to have a power base in the states. And by backing people who are not necessarily ones who can win a general election, um, that power base just may not materialize. And thank you for the segue, because we're talking about 2024, but we really need to be focused a little bit on 2022, which hasn't happened yet. G give us your prognosis for both uh, the House and Senate. Um, are, what is going to be the outcome in November? And we'll hold you to that answer. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah. I like to say my crystal ball broke in 2016, and I just have not been able to get it repaired. Um, but I can say that, um, I can say that, look, if you look at in this moment, um, you know, it, it, it looks like Democrats have a fairly good chance um, of holding on to holding control of the Senate. And, um, you know, things can really change a lot between now and November. But what has happened in many of these primaries is um, Republicans have 
chosen candidates who are just really struggling. They've had bitter primaries and they are struggling to coalesce um, you know, uh, you know the Republican voters behind them, and they're also really having a hard time kind of pivoting to a, a general election message that would, you know, appeal to a, a broader electorate, which is what sort of what typically happens after a primary, and um, and so you're seeing. You know, you're seeing in places like Pennsylvania, which should be a very close election, and where you have a Democratic candidate, John Fetterman, who has been unable to campaign because he had a massive stroke, but he's, you know, it's a massive health problem, but he still in polls has a commanding lead over, you know, his opponent, um, Dr. Mehmet Oz. And you're seeing that in other key places. So, you know, you even had Mitch McConnell this week acknowledge that the Senate may not flip to Democrat. Um, to, I mean, that that that, uh, that that he will he may not uh, regain power in in the Senate. The House is a very different story, um, and it's still favored for Republicans. Um, you know, there's less of a national message there. Voters don't have as much, they don't know the House candidates as well as they get to know the Senate candidates. Um, so they, so the um, candidates have a harder time sort of separating themselves from the party. But right. it, it is fascinating to see that Democrats may be able to take the, the Senate or hold the Senate rather. All right. Well, thanks, Annie. There's so much more we could talk about, but we need to go. And I really appreciate your joining us for my little debut moderating episode. Well, thanks. It's great to be here. All right. Um, we're going to take a short pause now and continue the conversation. Uh, now we're going to bring in my magnificent colleagues. I'm looking at you there, Hugh Hewitt and Jean Robinson. Welcome, you guys. Good morning, Ruth. Thanks, Ruth. Mm -hmm. hey. you're, All right. You're very, you're very host-like today. You're just uh, hosting like crazy. Well, <laughs> you are. I, I'm so glad to be on the debut of Ruth as as host. That's terrific. Well, I'm going to need your you. I have first of all, I have a bone to pick with you because you were in Wyoming where I am, and you didn't call me. Um, but uh, but after I pick that bone, um, I'll take your moderator tips um, off the air. All right, um, Hugh. As I said, you were in Wyoming, and I'm not that bitter. Um, because I'm in Wyoming, after all. Um, Wyoming's very big, Ruth. <laughs> it's big, that's true. Um, and it's also a big deal for Dick Cheney's daughter to lose in this state. What's your take on the bigger meaning of it all? Well, my, my disclosure is uh, Lynn Cheney was my boss at NEH. The vice president is one of the people I admire most in public life. And I love Liz Cheney. And she's been a guest on my radio show for decades. I'm going to regret losing her even for a little bit of time in the legislative bodies of the United States because her national security credentials are without parallel. I thought it was foreordained uh, because of her adamant, uh, important stand. Uh, I don't like the 1-6 committee, but I don't mind Liz talking about Donald Trump and where she finds shortfalls with him. A lot of Republicans agree with her on temperament issues and on policy issues, but I don't think the 1-6 committee is legitimate, and I've talked about that with Liz. What does it tell me about the party as a whole? They want to look forward, not backwards. They want to borrow from Bill Clinton's impeachment era and take the phrase, move on, and, and get Republicans to move on. Now, I was in Wyoming, not from the Liz race, but to talk to a dozen freshman Republican, not freshman, would-be freshman Republican, the Kevin McCarthy, had gathered. I interviewed them on stage and individually 
And none of them, although I asked them about Trump and abortion, none of them have made either that issue or that individual central or even close to central in their campaign. So I think maybe the Beltway has focused on uh, Liz a lot more than the party and the country have. All right. Well, Gene, um, are we focusing? Are we looking backwards um, too much at Trump, and or looking forward too much at Trump? And I'm wondering if you see any kind of silver lining here um, for Democrats to give them an issue to run on in 2022, which is um, their favorite issue, Donald Trump. Well, look, I think um, the more prominent Donald Trump is in this election cycle, probably. The, certainly the better it is for Democrats to turn out their base um, because nobody turns out the Democratic base like Donald Trump. Now, there are other reasons for the Democratic base to come out in the fall. I think a lot of people will come out in November um, um, because of the abortion issue. I, I think, um, uh, you know, I, I think Democrats are, are, um, are, will be motivated. That's certainly what Democratic um, uh, strategists and candidates hope. Um, uh, but, you know, you, you look at the midterm now and you look at the Democratic Party having a very, very good chance of, of keeping the Senate. And you look at the House um, races being, um, at least appearing right now, you look at, you know, the battle for control of the House being closer than one would have thought. Um, this is ought to be a Republican blowout year. It doesn't look like that. Uh, Hugh, I'm wondering, do you see it that way? And you touched on this a little bit earlier, but what's the advice that you would give specifically um, to Republicans in close races about how to treat, deal with, refer to or not Donald Trump? Uh, well, I've heard the successful candidates, I think it's going to be a blowout here in the House and very close in the Senate, by the way, is to say there were problems in the 2020 elections and they are we are disquieted by the Mark Zuckerberg boxes, by a bunch of different things, mail out ballots, but not to dispute the election. Donald Trump won. I said that on the uh, excuse me, Joe Biden won. And I said that on the day <laughs> of the election. Joe Biden won handily. It wasn't even close. Uh, four states by more than 40,000 votes. It's not close. It's not in dispute. They should not in any way say that President Biden is other than the legitimately elected president of the United States because he is. But they can look forward, but they ought not to talk about election integrity. It doesn't win. They should talk about affordability, anxiety, and anger. The affordability issue is, although inflation as a whole dropped a little bit last month, Groceries went up 13% year over year. And now Paul Begala and I had a fun exchange on Twitter. Paul's a good friend. He was saying Republicans don't want to talk about clean air. And I said, well, Republicans just want people to go grocery shopping and they'll win. Because uh, 13% is a heck of a big hit. Anxiety over the future of their kids and anger over the education system. That's where successful House and Senate candidates are focused on the three A's, affordability, anxiety, and anger. Gene, um, I want to ask you sort of the flip version of that question. How should Democrats deal with, should they embrace or not, Joe Biden? He had a pretty good week. Um, we're not talking about the, uh, the signing of the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, should they be running with him or they, should they be pretending they don't know that guy? Uh, no, I think that they certainly should should run on his record. Um, uh, you know, some will would will benefit from uh, from clinging more tightly to 
President Biden himself and uh, some probably will not. But uh, he's he's got a record to run on of of uh, of accomplishment. Um, uh, the you know, look, inflation is a problem for the party in power. There's no question about that. Um, but the most sort of visible blaring, because it, it's it's in your face when you drive down the street, evidence of inflation, uh, gas prices, um, and and really consequential for a lot of people who have to drive to get to work and to get home, um, uh, have come down, have come down considerably. Uh, they're not where they were, you know, a year, a couple of years ago, but um, but they're down considerably, uh, and so that's kind of a help. But uh, but no, I don't think you, you you can I don't think you can run away from the the, the White House if you were a Democrat. Um, you know you you've got a record that you can talk about and you talk about. I'm good. I um, this is a different kind of record, so uh, not the best segue. But yesterday, a judge in Florida heard arguments about making public possibly at least part of the affidavit that the Justice Department used to justify the search that we've all been talking about at Mar-a-Lago, the president's home and resort. You, you wrote a talk last week calling for this, um, and Trump has uh, as well. But I wonder if you think that this might uh, pose the risk of, well, I have two questions, actually. One is, uh, are, how much of this affidavit do you really think that we're going to see? And second of all, is do is this a be careful what you wish for thing for Donald Trump potentially because I'd love to see that affidavit but I don't necessarily think it's going to be all that flattering to Donald Trump. Our colleague Mike Mark Thiessen said last night I'm open to it telling me anything. Uh, I don't want them to publish any names because you know Salman Rushdie is in the back of my mind. The plot against John Bolton is in the back of my mind. There are crazy people who do crazy things and I do not want confidential informants' names revealed in an affidavit. But I do want to see the case that they made to the judge. And that's because we're familiar, all three of us, with pattern and practice litigation. It usually occurs in discrimination cases, race-based cases. You look for a pattern and practice of discrimination. The senior career officials at the FBI from 2015 forward have had it out for Donald Trump, whether it's Jim Comey in the initial briefing at Trump Tower, Peter Stroke, Lisa Page, Bruce Orr at Justice, the Carter Page FISA warrant, uh, Jim Baker, their general counsel, the Durham investigation. There's a pattern in practice that makes me suspicious. Now, I agree with your column, uh, uh, Ruth. Merrick Garland is no wild card. He's more like William French Smith than any other attorney general I've met. Big firm trial lawyer, you know, he's, he's like Mukasey, uh, perfect AG. He's not given to sudden outbursts, but there is a burden of proof on the Bureau and the Justice Department when it comes to an unprecedented search of a former president's home that I think makes it uh, wise to put out a redacted, careful uh, view of, of the affidavit. And indeed, it may hurt Trump. We have to wait and see. And Gene, um, as we're waiting and seeing, the Justice Department is arguing that it wants to keep the affidavit sealed because of, quote, highly sensitive information about witnesses. Is there a risk here um, for the Justice Department that arguing for secrecy could give the appearance that Trump is being more transparent than prosecutors are? 
Uh, there is that risk. I don't think Trump really wants to be transparent. I don't think he really wants the affidavit released, except to find those names, to find out who uh, in his circle is ratting on him. Uh, but uh, that's all he really wants. I don't think he wants the whole story of of, of how he handled or mishandled or whatever, um, classified and other documents that belong to you and me and you and the American people and not to Donald Trump. You know, that said, I certainly take the position that our news organization has taken. Um, I want transparency. Uh, I want to, I want to know as much of that as possible. I think it would be a mistake. So, so I, I'm going to agree with you, which I do occasionally that, um, I think it would be good, um, all, all around, um, for as much of this affidavit to be released as possible, and I and and I think and yes, this is kind of a special case, uh, and I I think it would be a mistake if it's just um, uh, worse than a Swiss cheese, uh, if it's just pages and pages blacked out. Um, then it really does look like um, you know you release it, but it's all blacked out. Then it really does look like you're trying to hide something. Um, so that's almost almost worse. Um, but I, my inclination, given that the judge is entertaining this, I, I don't think that's what he wants. I don't think he wants pages and pages of, of, of blackout. I think he wants uh, potentially to release uh, enough so that we can, we can gauge and we can judge. Interesting. I think I might be putting my money on more Swiss cheese than you are, but we'll have to all return and see. We've been talking about this as a legal matter, but it's obviously... Um, a political matter as well. Um, Hugh, from the moment the search began, Trump has um, not surprisingly seized on it, portrayed himself as a victim of government overreach and intrusion. Um, how's that strategy working? It's bad for Republicans. I, one of the things I picked up talking to the candidate, small dollar donors are down for the Republicans. They're up for Donald Trump. Uh, I believe the Trump campaign, I think the Post reported he sent out more than 100 emails to his supporters. Well, you only have one $10 to give every week or one $35 contribution to make every month. If it's going to the former president, it's not going to Jen Kiggins in Virginia. It's not going to Derek Van Orden in Wisconsin. So the more the president raises in small dollar donations, the less that Republican candidates make in small dollar donations. It's almost a one for one trade off. So uh, it's been good for the president's uh, campaign fund. It's been bad for the Republicans. That's the, I think that's the genuine real truth of it. That is just fascinating. And I'm sure that will mean that the president will ease off on ah! raising that money. <laughs> Absolutely. It's selflessness um, is his middle name. But anyhow. Indeed. Um, Gene, and you, we, we've talked about this. The, fundraising bonanza. Um, I'm wondering if you see it really the same way that Hugh does as bad for Republican candidates or good for them in terms of firing up the base and having yet another issue to use against Democrats and the Biden Justice Department. Well, look, I think if the Republican base isn't fired up um, already, they, the, the out of power party in the first election after the presidential elections, always fired up uh, and always ready to turn out and 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 grab back some power. Um, so uh, if if the base isn't fired up, I don't think it's going to be. Um, so I no, I think I, I agree with you that this is not good 
for uh, for the Republican Party uh, in general. Um, and and again, I'll come back to the point uh, that I made earlier, which is the more prominent Donald Trump is uh, in this whole cycle, um, the more noise he's making, uh, the 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 more that does tend to motivate the Democratic base to come come out. So um, so on balance, I think bad for bad for the GOP. Fascinating. I, this was not where I thought that conversation was coming out. Um, I want to turn to our, our last topic. And Jean, you wrote a column this week about a dinner party that you actually tried to get out of going to 30 years ago. <laughs> Will you tell us about it? Well, it was uh, it was a dinner party. Um, I was invited to by a, a television document documentary producer that I had just met, and, and I, you know, bureau chief in London. We were um, uh, it, we were kind of busy that weekend, and I tried to beg beg off the dinner, and said you can't beg off this dinner. And uh, and as I persisted, he finally said, look, I can't tell you this, but Salman Rushdie is going to be there. And so, of course, so were Avis and I. And um, uh, because this was uh, in, at the, you know, in, in basically the height of the of the fatwa, he was uh, he was the invisible man. He was being uh, he could not be seen in public. There were, um, uh, uh, you know, security agents um, in the in the street outside the house, um, which was a short walk from ours. There were uh, two uh, British security agents inside the house. Um, uh, this detail was with him uh, all the time. Um, it was it was fascinating uh, to meet him and to hear him talk about his 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 life in the shadows and the way he had to live. And and, and one thing um, I I remember um, was that he said there was only one airline, um, one commercial airline, period, that would allow him to fly on their planes because they you know they feared uh, that plane would be attacked in some way if 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 he were on it and and um uh, and he would the one thing he wouldn't talk about he wouldn't he wouldn't tell anybody was what airline that was because he said uh as soon as that becomes public there is no airline that will fly me and that's the way he lived um uh and and has had to live uh for 30 years um for and 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 it is it is just insane um, that uh, here on American soil, uh, he was so grievously attacked and so badly wounded. And I'm awfully glad that, you know, it looks like he's going to going to recover with a very serious attack. Um, Hugh, uh, insane is one word. Uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken called the attack despicable. And he said that the Iranian state institutions have incited violence against Rushdie for years. Are there any possible actions the U.S. should consider taking if Iran is directly linked to the attack on American soil? What can we do? Yeah, yeah they can deny the entry visa for the Iranian diplomats who want to address the U.N. That's a starter. They're trying to kill a bunch of Americans. John Bolton, they're trying to kill. And I, I've got to say two things about Rushdie. I've spoken from that platform. I was at Chautauqua three weeks ago. It's probably the safest place, I think, in America. So the Iranians reach is very, very far. But I also want to salute, he was my friend, he was probably your two friends as well, Christopher Hitchens. The last time I had dinner with Christopher at his home, he finally revealed. That's where Salman Rushdie hid out after the fatwa came out. He lived with Christopher Hitchens 
off of Wyoming Avenue for many, many years. And Hitch never said a word, one of the most popular guests on my radio show. That was real courage in the defense of a man being pursued by the Iranians. And we ought to take every action. It is a rogue regime. We should get out of those JCPOA 2.0 talks. And we ought to support Israel in their plans to, uh, to retaliate against the nuclear push by Iran. They are an evil regime. All right. Um, well, we are, we've had a lot of agreement today on a lot of things. So the new era of good feelings. Um, but we're out of time. We can, um, you and I can talk to... Michigan and Ohio State if you want. And then it breaks down. It breaks down, Quietly stand by while you guys do that. Um, Hugh and Jean, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Ruth. Well Thank you. Thank Very you. well Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.